Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're solution architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. This is AWS Tech Chat, and we're at episode 34. How are you going, Pete? Very well, Shane. It seems like it's been a while. It's been a good few weeks since we have sat down behind the mic here, and at this time of year, it's school holidays. And whilst I've been juggling kids, Pete, you look really refreshed. And I feel absolutely like a million bucks, Shane. Uh, I took a, a couple of weeks off and uh, headed to uh, the amazing world of uh, Japan. So I got to spend some time with uh, um, lots of folks. So konnichiwa to everyone in Japan. So I went to Tokyo, Osaka, and Kyoto and uh, had a really amazing time, Shane. Very, very different world. Tell us about it. Uh, what can I tell you? Highlights, um, spent a bit of time in Tokyo. Coming out of Australia, we've only got 20 plus odd million people. They've got over 120 million people thereabouts. Just exploring Tokyo alone was phenomenal. Uh, for those of you who may have been to Japan, and if you haven't, certainly go check out Shinjuku Station, which is basically the world's largest train station, which has over uh, 3.6 million people going through it every single day. So uh, it's got uh, you know about over 200 different exits. So we actually got lost uh, trying to find our way to the hotel while we were there. And uh, if you actually add up all the different platforms, They've got a total of 51 train platforms um, across, uh, you know, the main station and some of the surrounding stations. So it's phenomenal. And if you're into shopping, as my wife certainly is, uh, and my kids, uh, go check out the Ginza district. And that's got a very amazing number of uh, department stores, boutiques, and coffee houses, and uh, certainly a lot of cool shopping, Shane. Uh, unfortunately, the Australian dollar isn't very strong, so uh, my credit card is hurting me. <laughs> so marginally bigger than here in Melbourne. It's kind of similar prices, actually. So, um, yeah. But look, this is not a travel show. Uh, as you guys all know, this is a, a tech show. What can you tell us about the ever-growing AWS platform? Well, look, last year, we released 1,430 new services and or features. You know, that's almost four per day, four per day 3.97 to be mm -hmm. exact. And, you know, I think yep. we've put our foot on the gas as the cadence of new features has really accelerated as we lead up to reInvent. And since episode 33, when Gabe and Dean talked about X-Ray in depth, there have been over 100 announcements on our What's New blog. Today, we've parsed wow. and picked out the most relevant and impacting announcements. And being tech chat, we've performed a tech deep dive with them. <laughs> As always, right? We, uh, we curate, go through all this stuff, uh, and uh, we help you not to read the documentation, but uh, give you a rapid summary uh, of some of the coolest, awesome things that have just been uh, announced and released. So, so Shane, did you want to kick off with uh, the usual sort of platform update and uh, you know those yeah, kind of things? Yeah, let's do it. You know, it's a bumper episode today, so let's quickly dive into the news here. So a quick lap mm. of events in the coming months of AWS, and normally we'd talk about summits. But summit season has finished this year, and as we gear up for reInvent, there's not too long to go now. Just over a month, reInvent is in Las Vegas from November 26th to November 30th. There will be keynote announcements, training, certification opportunities, and more than 2,000 technical breakout sessions, which is amazing, you know, 2,000. And Shane, will you be at the uh, at uh, reInvent? I will not this year, Pete. That's a shame. Ah, well, hopefully we can get you a ticket next year. Mm, and you, you know what's more? There's 
all that Las Vegas has to offer. Uh, <laughs> and there's a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's reInvent and there's Vegas. Um, but uh, look, for those of you who are still interested in uh, attending many of our other events that are going on, um, use your favorite search engine to go and check out AWS events because we still have a plethora of many virtual events and in-personal events such as uh, startup days uh, across the uh, many different countries across the world, uh, as well as Twitch. We have been doing lots and lots of Twitch uh, uh, broadcasts, uh, and then there's, there's going to be plenty of stuff for you guys to check out and tune into. Mm, yeah, absolutely on Twitch. Um, plenty of events, and you know you can usually find things that are streamed within your local time zone. So no excuses there. Indeed, indeed. But uh, look, I'll be at reInvent, so uh, I may bump into some of you in person if if, if you guys are around. Uh, please come and say hi. Uh, I'll be roaming around the place, and uh, I may or may not be twitching. <laughs> Uh, to all of you with maybe some of the updates that are coming out live uh, or maybe just after they've been announced. Awesome. Sounds good, Pete. And Shane, you've been doing a lot of public speaking. Um, anything on your event horizon in terms of your, your your physical appearances somewhere? Yeah, look, for me this week, I'll be presenting at the Australian Cybersecurity Conference in Melbourne, Australia. So if you're out and about, drop in and say hello. Fantastic. All right. So back to the platform. Um, Shane, Growing platform, uh, increasing number of footprint, uh, more and more uh, edge locations uh, appearing. Uh, what's been added to the stack or rather the global footprint? Mm-hmm. Uh, so no new regions to announce today, but our edge locations continue to grow. We've squeezed out another edge location. We've added a second edge location to New Delhi in India. So that brings our total number of points of presence to 136 worldwide. This nice. doubles CloudFront's capacity in the local area within India, not only for CloudFront, but for other edge services like Route 53, WAF, and Lambda at the edge. And, you know, the other cool thing that we've also announced, speaking of expansion, is a reduction in um, spend. And we, we always like sharing with you guys uh, uh, when we drop prices and things. Uh, so the good news is that for all of the AWS customers who happen to be using regions uh, in this part of the world, so in in, uh, in Tokyo, so okay, again, Kurichiwa to everyone there, uh, and the, uh, the Sydney regions, we've actually reduced prices uh, up to 34% for Japan and 28% in Australia. So this can be quite a significant saving here uh, if you are, you know, sending out, uh, you know, lots of data out of your EC2 instances um, out towards your customers. So it's a, it's a great news story, Shane. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that is, they are considerable price reductions. Indeed. Now, we often talk about uh, new services, but we also can always go back to old services like EC2. Um, and we have a new announcement around a new instance type. Yeah, look, and I always like new toys. And in late September, we announced a new family VC2 instances, the U-Series. Now, these aren't going to be for everyone and they will fill another niche, you know, further adding to the full complete picture that is Amazon EC2. So, so Shane, what makes these uh, new U-Series instances different? Well, I think you could probably just say in one word, they are huge. And <laughs> I mean huge, Pete, 448 vCPUs. 224 wow. cores, so plus hyperthreading. So mm-hmm. given that I mentioned hyperthreading, of course, these are based on Intel Xeon and more specifically the Skylake architecture. Six, nine, 12 terabytes of RAM. Yes, terabytes, not gigabytes. They're <laughs> based on Oct socket platforms. And if you've ever had to buy enterprise IT hardware in the past, this is really, in effect, the equivalent of buying a supercar. And Shane. That's a lot of that's a lot of RAM. That is a lot of RAM, and you know perhaps a supercar may be cheaper than one of these systems. 
<laughs> and what about um, some of the other sort of metrics and network performance and storage? Yeah, look, bandwidth? so obviously this isn't your run-of-the-mill instance family and it meets that, you know, niche use case that with workloads requiring large memory and computational requirements. There's 25 gigabit per second networking and 14 gigabits a second of dedicated network bandwidth and they're based on our new Nitro hypervisor. So nice. let's talk about use cases for these instances as they are really designed for in-memory database engines. So, you know, we're talking the likes of SAP HANA, but having lots of RAM means predictable performance as tables, you know, they can be loaded into memory to prevent swapping and checkpoints. So, you know, from an IO perspective, we can smooth out the IO, um, I guess, uh, behavior mm-hmm. where applications aren't, so they're not tied to an IO subsystem in many ways that um, many OLTP-based systems are, I guess, are, you know, the bottleneck is today. It'd be kind of interesting to give you a, you know, set up a partition that's got a, you know, a, you know those RAM drives. <laughs> that could be a lot of storage for a lot of files for super fast access. Oh, yeah, I remember doing that back in the DOS days using RAM, <laughs> RAM drive. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, Shane, if I were to spin one of these puppies up, can I do it from the console? Well, you can't. And, you know... Let me defer that question and pose another one to you. You know, should you be spinning one up? You know, these are sledgehammers. And if your architecture is scale out in nature, I'd probably mm-hmm. recommend, you know, to you and to other AWS customers to investigate a horizontal approach as the cost equation isn't going to be there, you know, to need a supercar. And if all you're doing is effectively taking the kids to school and dropping them off and picking them up every day. <laughs> okay, so, good call. Good you know, call. Given these are supercars in nature and in cost, they're not available on demand and you need to procure these U-series on a three-year RI reserved instance and you'll need to contact your friendly AWS account team to get started with this. Okay, so you got to talk to us before you can get access to them and you also have to make sure you have an RI reserved yeah, instance in right. place for your, uh, for your new supercar. Very good, yes. So staying with EC2, quickly, both M5 and C5s find their way into more regions. And Mm -hmm. as they do, the services such as AWS Batch, Beanstalk, and EMR are now available on these new instance types, inclusive of not only M and C, but others such as R, T, and Z. So check the product pages as your mileage may vary. Okay, so Shane, let's just, let's just recap for a second. So we've got a large number of different family instances. Let's just go through them. So what's the M class? So the M class is our general purpose compute that has a balanced amount of CPU and RAM and is suitable for most workloads. Okay, and the Cs? So our Cs are our compute optimized. So for intensive workloads that you know need to deliver a very cost-effective high performance at a low price per compute ratio. We have our R, may as well continue here, uh, which is our RAM optimized. So having a higher ratio of RAM, suitable for database engines and so on. We have our T-series, you know, very popular. These are our low-cost instances. T's provide a baseline level of CPU performance with the ability to burst CPU usage at any time for as long as required on our new T3s. And finally, we've got our Z-series. So they deliver a sustained all-core frequency up to 4 gigahertz, and they are the fastest of any cloud instance, perfect for applications that need you know, really fast, single-threaded performance. And look, we've certainly spoken about the Zs in the past, but uh, I don't want to turn this show into an infrastructure theme today, <laughs> but uh, we sure have uh, been pretty busy in that space. Um, in terms of uh, more infrastructure, uh, have you heard about the AWS Storage Gateway? I uh, used to use one at home once upon a time. But tell me more. 
I, I have heaps of to share with you. So the Storage Gateway, as many of you may know, provides a hybrid sort of a cloud storage solution. It's a, it's a low latency data access where you set up a local uh, virtual machine that uh, gives you ac- the ability to actually um, you know, push your data into the cloud, into generally into S3. Um, and it has generally an NFS, an SMB, or an iSCSI interface, but it also supports a virtual tape library interface. So it kind of mimics the, uh, the tapes that you may be still using today in some data centers around the world. Um, so this new announcement around the storage gateway appliance is essentially uh, a rackable appliance uh, that you can configure either as a file gateway, which means that you can actually have your files uh, locally cached and pushed into S3 as objects. Uh, you can have volume gateway setups where you can actually have a whole iSCSI volume uh, being copied into S3. And if you'd like, you can create EBS volumes from snapshots in the cloud and or potentially mimic a tape gateway if you're doing a lot of backups. So uh, this new appliance actually can be deployed and dropped into your existing rack in your data center, Shane. Awesome. You know, I was just only last week talking with a customer who sends containers all around the world and they use Storage Gateway on their ships that carry these containers and they operate Storage Gateway as a volume gateway. So hang on, Shane, let's just stop there for a second. We're talking about real ships, so stuff in the water with physical steel container crates sitting on top of those ships. Yeah, not Docker or Kubernetes or ECS, real ships carrying real containers, shipping containers full of goods and services. Okay, so, so they use the storage gateway on those ships? They use storage gateway on those ships, exactly. So their ships have internet connectivity. They're able to store their hot data locally and for data that's less frequently accessed, they're able to leverage storage gateway, which will fetch that data from you know, S3 and mm-hmm. you know store that locally and provide it over an SMB NFS interface locally. That's awesome because when you think about it, I mean, if you're a ship in the middle of the ocean, um, the only comms that you've got is really satellite and that's uh, in the hundreds of millisecond range. So um, that's impressive. It's really, really good. Is. Well, look, since we launched Storage Gateway um, only uh, a few years ago, it's become, you know, it's been available now on VMware, on ESX, and uh, as, as a Hyper-V appliance. And you can, as many of you may know, it's also available to be spun up on EC2 uh, as a Storage Gateway. So uh, this offering now, uh, which is which is actually a physical appliance, it's in hardware, uh, it's based on a Dell EMC PowerEd server um, and provides you, you know, uh, quite a fair bit uh, under the hood. So the specs are essentially it's a PowerEdge um, R640 uh, with dual uh, Intel Xeons, with uh, six two terabyte SSD drives, as well as two two forty gig SSD drives, and uh, one NVMe drive of quad ten gigabit Ethernet connectivity. So it's a it's a software defined SAN, so storage area network in an one RU box. So uh, that's uh, quite a fair bit of uh, firepower uh, for storage, and uh, it gives you the ability to actually you know, keep growing and uh, consuming more by literally copying stuff from your data center into the cloud. So yeah, I, I should get one. All my photos for my holiday. <laughs> All right. So I think that's the last of our infrastructure-based topics today, I promise. But um, tell us about security, Pete. Uh, here's a bit of a chatter going on in that space at the moment. Well, security is... As you, as it- Hopefully, all of you know is uh, very important to all of us at Amazon. It's a, you know, we used to call it Job Zero, uh, but it's basically um, so important that we keep reviewing constantly um, our stature. We have third parties reviewing our facilities and infrastructure, um, and we also become very aware whenever there is sort of any sort of you know, chatter in the uh, in the security realm. So uh, I want to actually call out that. Um, 
you know, multi-factor authentication is hopefully all of you know is really important. Uh, and we're actually making some changes there. Uh, now, MFAs are very important because you probably want to lock down your root account and uh, many of your uh, credentials, especially under the identity and access management user roles uh, for access to your AWS console. Uh, so quite often, some people actually have been using industry uh, short message service, so SMS, as the uh, multi-factor authentication model where they will actually, uh, or in this case, we would send you a text message with a PIN number that you actually have to enter into the uh, the, the website or the application in order to gain access to it. But uh, what's actually interesting is that the, uh, the National Institute of Standards and Technology has been declaring that SMS may not be as secure as uh, one pe people may have thought, Shane. Mm. Um, and that's actually kind of interesting because uh, it all comes down to the phone network potentially being abused, believe it or not. Tell me more. Well, <laughs> so this is a, this is tech chat. So we're going to dive deep here for a second. Um, so when I was a younger man, um, you know, I uh, I used to sort of you know, play with tech like you did. You know, I'm scrambling and playing with things. And uh, uh, in my dark dark past, I actually had uh, a really good understanding of how exchanges used to work. Um, so C five, as it used to be called, uh, was a signaling communication protocol where exchanges would actually talk to each other. Uh, and those 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 uh, protocols were actually set up back in the '90s, so they've been around for a while. Uh, and C5 used to be, um, unfortunately, a very vulnerable protocol because um, if you remember Captain Crunch or you've watched any of the uh, of the movies around hackers, um, they actually used to exploit the C5 holes in exchanges. So that was actually um, because you could actually send tones down the phone line. C5 tone, which are those DTMF dial tone modular frequency tones, uh, to emulate an exchange. So a phone in your house could actually function like an exchange. Not very cool. So that was actually then replaced by what they called C7 or SS7. It's got multiple different names depending which part of the world you actually happen to be in. It's a ITU standard, so it's the International Telecommunications um, standard. Uh, and that actually took all that messaging out of band. So in other words, people couldn't emulate an exchange over the phone lines. As it turns out, SS7 um, is actually also used inside the phone network, the, which is the mobile phone network as well. Um, and it is actually possible to disrupt that network. And it's also possible to intercept messages. So this is why the whole delivery of MFA via SMS can be compromised. Um, so there is actually now a move uh, for some providers like like us. So as of February the 1st, 2019, uh, we are going to stop supporting SMS MFA um, because we believe that this, this risk is very real. And um, there have been many no documented cases uh, across the globe where uh, some telcos have actually been compromised. Uh, oddly enough, uh, this has been around for a very long time. It's, uh, it's well known, but now it's becoming uh, kind of a critical thing. There have been many stories documented where uh, many of the, uh, the Bitcoin users who've been using the phone and using SMS MFAs to be authenticated with uh, have actually been compromised. So some people, according to uh, the interwebs, have lost um, millions of dollars as a result of that. So we don't want that to happen to anyone if you use AWS. So uh, so you don't, you still have time. If you're still using SMS, uh, be more cautious with it. Um, but certainly by uh, February 1st, 2019, we are going to stop, uh, stop supporting it. Mm, Bitcoin must have been worth a bit at that time, Pete. Well, it does fluctuate quite a bit. It's a very popular <laughs> currency, I guess. But uh, so the way we're going to replace that is uh, we're going to, again, it's, it's already there, but we're going to support um, virtual uh, MFAs. And that's basically using the um, the, the one-time password TOTP standard. It's described in RFC 6238 for those who are really interested, um, you know, whether it's a Google authenticator or, or uh, your own. Uh, Git has a number of projects where they actually have TOTP 
um, little bit of, bits of apps that you can actually integrate yourself. Uh, we also support hardware-based MFA devices like Gemalto tokens. And the most important thing is we have just recently added the U2F security key support. Awesome. Instead. A U2F key. So now we're really talking here. We're really geeking out here, right? So now you can use the popular <laughs> U2F keys, uh, which is actually basically a standard. Uh, it's an open uh, authentication standard that really strengthens and simplifies the two-factor authentication um, uh, protocol. Essentially, what these things are, are either USB devices or near-field communication de NFC devices um, that actually basically give you, aka in a smart card, uh, which you can basically um, either tap on a reader or plug into your USB port, and they emulate the keyboard wedge, which means you simply tap your finger uh, on this tiny little device, um, and it sends a string of characters, uh, which is constantly changing. So that this little device has a clock in it, um, and a special unique identifier. And every time you tap it, uh, it's that unique uh, mechanism of saying, this is who you are. And here is the rolling key, which is almost impossible to, uh, to replicate. Mm. So look, you mentioned popular. I'd almost go as far to say U2F has become a standard or is becoming the standard. You know, it may be the next VHS. Um, mm. You know, you can use U2F keys to authenticate to other third-party applications such as GitHub, Dropbox, uh, Google Apps, and even Facebook, meaning, you know, you can have that one-to-many approach. So, that's one less thing you need. You don't need 10 different security products. You can use the same U2F, YubiKey, not only for AWS, but for, you know, other popular third-party uh, services in the wild. Including your own. Uh, by the way, did you say VHS is in the video standard before? That did, yeah. <laughs> That's, that's, that's definitely going back. Uh, that's a blast to the past to C5 signaling <laughs> in VHS. Absolutely. <laughs> well, listen, uh, well, listen. the, uh, the YubiKey is, uh, is a very popular product. It's an MFA, and uh, we actually allow you to, uh, to pair um, those keys with your identity and access management users in the IAM console. It's actually really straightforward. You simply uh, go and create... Uh, a user and as a part of the user creation, you can enable MFA. And one of the options now is to uh, use basically uh, the U2F uh, keys, which uh, makes it really simple. And uh, like I said, it's as simple as plugging this device into the USB port. It behaves like a keyboard. Uh, you simply tap your finger on the edge of this device. Uh, a string of text gets generated and sent in um, and off you are, you are registered. And the other cool thing about it that I really enjoy is that uh, if you are using Amazon Workspaces or using any remote uh, terminal applications by having this uh, YubiKey plugged into your USB port and because it behaves like a keyboard, um, it's actually really portable. It just uh, you know sends that string of text to any application that's currently active just as if you typed it. So the real question is, how many times do you accidentally mm -hmm. touch your YubiKey? <laughs> Way too many times. Actually, I have a trick. I have a pro trick. Um, I have this tiny little little YubiKey that just literally fits inside my Mac port. What you can do with it, because it's so small, you can actually pull it out, flip it upside down, and still plug it into your USB port which means it's not draining power and I no longer have PowerPoint presentations or emails with very long 20 to 30 characters worth of random keys appearing all over the place. I might have to use that. I wouldn't be worried about the milliamps that it's probably going to draw of constant current. But, you know, the fact I'm often sitting using my laptop on my lap and I accidentally touch it, yeah, it's not good. It's been pasted in uh, many, uh, many emails or forums, etc. 
Indeed. But listen, for those of you who really want to better understand how this can be done, we have a wonderful uh, blog post on uh, on using YubiKeys with the um, um, AWS IM console. So go and check out uh, a blog post called uh, Use YubiKey Security Key to Sign Into the AWS Metering Console. console. It's a mouthful for multi-factor authentication. Go check it Good out. Good one. All right, Pete, I am really excited because since joining AWS, my development skills have shifted tremendously. And, you know, that really hasn't been a bad thing. It's opened my mind up. But, you know... Yeah, you, you discovered Linux. discovered Linux, exactly. You know, <laughs> first Mac. Um, I used to, you know, dabble around with Ubuntu and CentOS. But, you know, rewind 10 years and anyone who knows me in the past, you would have seen me defaulting to VB, VBNet, um, VB Script, and mm. PowerShell. And... You know, Microsoft, Microsoft guy, guy right? yeah. Through you know, like it's, you know, the, the saying, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. So, you know, it's been that gradual evolution, even classic ASP. <laughs> um, and look, some may say they were cool. I, I will put my hand up and say that. And I still think they are relevant today. You know, things are shifting, absolutely. But there are a lot of organizations mm. that use these technologies. Yeah, polyglots everywhere now. You know, it's not just Microsoft world. It's a, it's a very much mixed open source and closed absolutely. source world. And the other part about joining AWS, you know, there is no substitute for eating one's dog food, they say. And this gave me, you know, we've spoken about this in the past, the opportunity to refactor my house. I've got rid of local compute. Mm-hmm. I've embraced Lambda and really I haven't looked back. But when I did this... And you, and you love PowerShell too. You love PowerShell, love PowerShell too. But, you know, the glue yeah. that hold many of the projects like a PLC communicating to alarm system in my house originally was PowerShell, which forced me to refactor bits of glue in down the Python or Node.js path. Well, mm-hmm. this stops now because okay. PowerShell or more precisely PowerShell 6 using .NET Core 2.1 runtime is now available on Lambda, which is our serverless compute platform. Ooh. Ooh. Wow, that's awesome. That's so cool. you can use any of the available PowerShell commandlets or develop your own when authoring serverless functions. To get started, all you need to do is simply download the AWS Lambda tools for PowerShell module from the PowerShell gallery, and it includes some project templates for PowerShell-based serverless applications, as well as tools to publish these projects to AWS. So Shane, how long would it take me to actually get my machine set up for PowerShell development um, on a Linux box or a Mac? So I'm not sure how good you are, Pete, but... um, I'm okay. I'm All okay. Right. So look, <laughs> I, can read the, I can read the documentation pretty pretty good. That's a really good start. So look, depends on your internet connectivity speed. Um, it should only take about ten minutes. So you will need to install mm-hmm. PowerShell six and the .NET Core two point one SDK. And our documentation, you know, really guides you through this. PowerShell Core is built on top of .NET Core. The Lambda support for PowerShell uses the same .NET Core 2.1 Lambda runtime for both .NET Core and PowerShell-based Lambda functions. So .NET Core 2.1 SDK is used by the new PowerShell publishing commandlets for Lambda to create the Lambda deployment package. Okay. Um, so, you know, really simple. Just you still haven't told me how long it would take me though. So... I have a strong You've got internet a connection, fast so I can do a lot of internet reading. connection. It shouldn't take more than ten minutes. So you will need okay. to download around seven hundred meg worth of SDK and our Lambda tools for PowerShell, which I don't think are very big. Once extracted, it will mm-hmm. consume close to one gig in hard drive space. Right. Like I said, the SDK is pretty chunky. 
yeah, I don't know when these things became so big. I don't know. It's it's kind of getting scary. It's like you know, word documents with a, you know uh, a couple of words are now like you know yeah. fifty kilobytes. So much for the good old text and CSV files. I might have to switch back to Nano. <laughs> yes. All righty. Of course. So, 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 so what else do I need to know, Shane? So if I do want to uh, start creating um, Lambda functions in PowerShell, uh, you know, what do I All do? Right, how, so do I get, how do I get the ball rolling? What, what are the commands I need to use? That you've, in, you've managed to install PowerShell 6 and the .NET Core 2.1 SDK. You mm -hmm. simply, all you need to do is install the AWS Lambda PS Core module with the okay. install hyphen module commandlet and that's it. So it'd be something like install hyphen module, AWS Lambda PS Core, and the scope of your current user, and that is it. Okay, so I'm I'm set to go. So once I've done that, I've got uh, all of the uh, the scaffolding required to be able to uh, create a templatized. Uh, do we have templates like blueprints or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, we for do. PowerShell? So you can issue the get hyphen AWS PowerShell Lambda templates, and there is about ten of them today, ranging from uh, Kinesis, SNS, SQS. S3 um, recognition and so on. So, you know, there's quite a little bit there or, you know, you can build your own in an IDE such as Visual Studio Code or your favorite text editor. I would probably recommend one that understands PowerShell because that's always going to be a bonus to ensure whatever you're writing is syntactically correct. Once you've created and authored your function, you simply publish it using the yep. publish hyphen AWS PowerShell Lambda commandlet. You pass in your... PowerShell name, so it could be, you know, Shane's Lambda function dot PS1. You pass a parameter, the name of the Lambda function within side AWS Lambda and the region to which you're going to publish. It is as simple as that. You will set your triggers as usual. Fantastic. So you can take uh, all of your uh, PowerShell code and drop it into Lambda. And uh, if you really, really want to go crazy, you can make them all serverless. How yeah, funky is absolutely. that? And put an API gateway in front of it and uh, you can API gateway your your Lambda functions written in PowerShell in .NET Core. Yeah, I don't know if I'd do that, but uh, you know, I think with... I would. That's, that's, I'm a geek. I'll do it. I would use the most appropriate, and this is what I would absolutely tell our customers, you know, the most appropriate tool for the job. You know, I might probably default more towards a C-sharp approach um, rather than mm -hmm. PowerShell, but you know, this is great and I can kind of forget all these promises and ensuring that my for Node.js, I can forget that having to tab and, you know, make sure everything's correctly indented in Python. So, Okay, you're a PowerShell guy. That's it's obvious. But, but for the super geeks, you know, PowerShell does let you put in C-sharp code in, in line. So uh, it does still go. compile. <laughs> That's the inner geek in me. All right, cool. So Shane, very exciting news. So, so the other thing I'm really also excited about is, uh, is about the ability to now do really comprehensive logging for our uh, for our WAF. For those of you who are uh, very security conscious, you know, you're probably aware that uh, our web application firewall you know, helps you to protect your web applications from very common, you know, web exploits that could really affect your applications in really nasty ways, compromise your security, and uh, in many cases also consume uh, excessive resources that you might you, you know that you probably don't want to pay pay for. With the release of the comprehensive logging, uh, what we now let you do is uh, allow you to basically log every single request via the WAF. Um, so the cool thing about it is uh, you simply need to turn on um, AWS uh, Firehose, which is basically the ability to then create uh, a mechanism for ingestion of, uh, of those um, uh, events, uh, and they will then be delivered into your S3 bucket. 
So you can basically uh, uh, start looking at them because they come in in a JSON format and they show you the actual counts uh, of number of times something actually has happened. So if you want to debug and tune the rules or you want to see what kind of attacks are occurring against your particular web uh, web assets, um, you can detect this behavior. Uh, you can also, by the way, push these into push these logs into a, a, a seam and uh, do some log analysis, whether it's through Elasticsearch or Sumo Logic or Splunk or any other web, or, you know, array of tools, uh, you certainly can do that. And uh, if you actually look at the, uh, the JSON payloads, there's a lot of really useful information because it tells you the number of occurrences of a particular, um, you know, um, uh, event, uh, the type of event, what rules actually have been fired off, um, you know, the client IPs. You can do some really clever smarts uh, and start doing some really clever analytics. Shane, it's uh, pretty impressive. Yeah, and I think what's cool about this, you know, you mentioned consuming excessive resources. So you don't know, fast mm -hmm. forward back a couple of months when this feature wasn't available. If yep. a, uh, I'm going to say, a bad guy, a malicious actor. Mm -hmm. was accessing your environment and it wasn't triggering a rule, you'd be oblivious to it. So this really provides an extra level of visibility to what is occurring in your environment, allowing you know, to hone and refine these rules appropriately. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's very, very important. So um, yeah, it's uh, if you're a security person who wants to have lots and lots of detail around uh, what exactly is happening at the WEF edges, and by the way, you know, when you when you have the WEF, you know, it, does, it actually can... Be deployed. Actually, it is deployed um, to all the edges, uh, so that means the traffic, you know, gets shut down uh, at the far, far remote locations and not necessarily at your origin. So, uh, very, very important aspects. But Shane, uh, I'm excited about this, but I'm also excited about the next announcement that you've got for us. Ooh. All right, let's move on to some database news here. Mm. So, some time ago, we mentioned Amazon Aurora Parallel Query. Well, Amazon Aurora Parallel Query is now generally available. So a bit of a refresher here, Aurora, our fastest growing Amazon service, which is a relational database that was designed to take full advantage of the abundance of networking, processing, and storage resources available within AWS. And it does this whilst maintaining compatibility with MySQL and Postgres on the user visible side. And Aurora makes use of a modern purpose-built distributed storage system under the covers. Your data becomes striped across hundreds of storage nodes it's distributed over three distinct AWS availability zones with two copies per zone on, you know, really fast SSD storage. Mm. And why, you know, I mentioned distributed and storage air is because of this new feature called Parallel Query. So Shane, what, what exactly does that do? What is it, how does that help the, uh, uh, the database guy in the application? Great question. Okay, so... Some database engines can parallelize query processing across CPUs in one or a handful of servers. Mm -hmm. Where Aurora Parallel Query comes in, it takes advantage of Aurora's unique architecture to push down and parallelize the query processing across thousands of CPUs in the Aurora storage layer. And by doing this, it can offload the anal analytical query processing mm -hmm. to reduce network, CPU, and buffer pool contention within transactional workloads. More so, you can run a mixture of OLTP and OLAP queries, which has traditionally been a no-no, simultaneously on the same table whilst maintaining high throughput for both types of queries. So Shane, um, tell me, are there any specific instance types that I need to use to basically get access to the, uh, the parallel query functionality? Yeah, so you will need to use the R series, which we mentioned before, though they are EC2 instances that have a high amount of RAM mm -hmm. to other resource ratios. And depending on the 
instance type within the family, this will determine the number of concurrent parallel queries that you can run. Got it. Okay, so walk me through it. So what are some of the, uh, um, the sizings that I should be thinking about? All right, so... You know, it starts off at the DBR4, R5, large. You can want, run one concurrent parallel query session, mm -hmm. moving all the way up to the 16X large, which can run 16 concurrent parallel query sessions. Got it. Okay, so the larger the instance, the more concurrency uh, for the parallel queries. Now, I think I also may need to tweak something else, right? Uh, like uh, maybe a, a parameter, perhaps, to enable this? Yes, you do. So you need to use the Aurora underscore PQ parallel query parameter to enable and disable the use of par parallel queries at the global and session level. Awesome. And uh, what, does, what does this actually then do? So it enhances the performance of over 200 types of single table predicates and hash joins. Okay. The query optimizer will automatically decide whether or not to use a parallel query based on the size of the table and the amount of table data that is already in memory. You can use the Aurora underscore PQ force session variable to override the optimizer for testing purposes. Nice. Nice. I think uh, Jeff Barr also has got a blog out on this um, and uh, he did some performance testing. Can you share some of those uh, with our listeners? Yeah, it was great actually because I didn't have to go and build this out. So obviously your mileage may vary and you know the tests that were chosen really plays to the strength of distributed storage. But the blog that Jeff uh, authored uses the AWS CLI to restore a 100 gig database snapshot and uses the TPCH benchmark to select, to run a query. You know, it's based on select, where, order, group from a really large table. So with parallel query on the same instance of the same type of machine, it took around two minutes. And the same process without parallel query took over one hour and 25 minutes. Wow. That's huge. Yeah, so that is a considerable performance improvement. And given that most architectures, you know, definitely based on my experience and customers out there, are database bound, mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure end users, you know, sitting at home, they're being able to notice a speed difference when they click on a link on a website, or at least those paying the bills will really notice this considerable performance improvement. So Shane, if I wanted to turn this on, um, where in which regions is this actually currently available? So it is available currently in US East. North Virginia, US East, Ohio, US West, Oregon, EU Island, and Asia Pacific, Tokyo regions. Okay, so not quite here in Sydney yet. Not quite. Don't worry, we'll lobby for you guys to make sure we bring it down under as soon as possible. Shane, that's really exciting. I mean, I, I think this whole, uh, you know, do it in the plumbing, um, enable it for a switch, and uh, get a massive, huge, this is like, you know, an hour and 23 minute performance improvement over the other. Wow, it's just blow my mind That's yeah um you know and it really plays to the strength of you know distributed io and compute here you know something that i guess you know when the mysql engine was developed many 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 years ago you know these advancements probably weren't thought of back then no not at all and uh yeah one of the big value adds of cloud one of the many in fact value adds of going to the cloud but listen as always we are always running out of time so um that kind of wraps up the uh, this episode chain and uh what an episode has this been you know just to quickly recap we've talked about the the, the supercar of the uh, of the new instance families the u family for ec2s we talked about the storage gateway appliance a physical hardware appliance you can actually drop into your data center um, 
um, or perhaps uh, in some cases under your desk um, to get that hybrid storage. I've talked about you know the um, the new changes around the uh, support for uh, the multi-factor authentication and perhaps uh, the ultimate uh, you know, removal of SMS MFA uh, next year. I've talked about logging for AWS WAF. We've uh, got you super excited about reliving your PowerShell life now as a, as a Lambda function <laughs> uh, and going totally uh, down the uh, serverless ethos world chain. Um, and finally, the, uh, the announcement around the uh, parallel queries for Aurora has gone GA. How cool is that? It's phenomenal. Amazing. Well, guys, thanks for tuning in. As always, we appreciate uh, you listening in. And uh, uh, to those Japanese listeners, konnichiwa. Thank you for everything you've done for me when I was over there. Keep listening and uh, keep on building. Bye for now. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com.